I've entitled today's message, With a Little Help from My Friends. We'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we will consider this passage together. Let's pray. Our Lord, it is so good to be back together again as a church family, and I thank you for each one who has come. Lord, I pray your every blessing on each of their lives. Might you pour out your grace and peace upon them. Lord, would you help them as they try to be faithful to you throughout their weeks? Help them to fulfill all of their responsibilities well. Help them to be faithful in their witness this week. Lord, I pray that you might use today's passage from Colossians to work on their hearts, to make them more like you, that you would use it to give them and me a greater appreciation for what you have given us here in the church. And Lord, we want you to be glorified in this hour. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it has taken us seven months, but we've finally come to the final passage in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And in this final section, the Apostle Paul makes a few last requests, and he also offers a few last goodbyes. And what makes this passage really remarkable to me is just the sheer number of names that Paul lists off in his goodbyes. And when you look closely at the list, you find tremendous diversity among these names. We find men and women here. We find Jews and Gentiles. We find rich people and poor people. But they were all part of Paul's entourage. And what I want to do this morning with you is to walk through each one of these names. And I want to offer a brief biography of each person. I want to offer a few additional comments as we go along. And then, after I've concluded my walk through these verses, then we'll turn to the sermon outline that you have in your bulletin. And I'll offer a few general observations uh, about the list as a whole. So my sermon's going to be structured just a little bit differently than normal, but I think the nature of the text today lends itself uh, to a new format. So let's jump right into this list. We'll begin in verses 7 through 9. Here Paul lists the two men that he had chosen to take his letter to the church of Colossae. The name of the first man is Tychicus. You see that at the start of verse 7. Look at the descriptions Paul offers of this man. He calls him a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. Now, we know from the book of Acts that Tychicus had accompanied the Apostle Paul on part of his missionary journeys. And apparently, Tychicus was the perfect ministry colleague. Here was a faithful man, very humble man, and very helpful to Paul. And it was for these reasons that the Apostle Paul chose Tychicus to take the letter that he is now completing off to the church in Colossae. And he gives the reason why he had chosen Tychicus specifically in verse 8. He says, And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. So as Paul considered all of the men he was associated with and who he could entrust this precious letter to, to get it to Colossae, he chose Tychicus. Here's a faithful and a helpful man. This man was also an encourager too. 
He knew that the church of Colossae was probably feeling a little bit down. After all, he, Paul, was in prison. They had been, been facing all of these false teachers. And he needed a real encourager to go and help this church. So he chose Tychicus. This was the man for the job. He was going to go. He would get that letter to its destination. He would lift the spirits of the Colossian Christians. What a great man for Paul to have on his team. But then we see in verse 9, there was a second man charged with delivering the letter, and his name was Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was a, a slave from Colossae who had run away from his slave master. Somehow he had ended up in Rome where Paul was. The apostle Paul witnessed to him, and Onesimus became a Christian. And now Paul was sending Onesimus back with Tychicus to the city of Colossae. Onesimus will help to deliver the letter to the Colossian church. He's also going to take a second letter to his slave master, the one he had run away from. You can read the contents of that letter because it's in our New Testament. It's the book of Philemon. You'll notice that Onesimus, this runaway slave, is also described as a faithful and beloved brother just like Tychicus was. And then Paul also adds this, he is one of you. That means he is a fellow resident of Colossae, like you believers, but he's also a fellow Christian with you now. Isn't it wonderful how the gospel of Christ just tears down all of those old distinctions between people? Onesimus is no longer defined because he has been enslaved. Right, He is now defined by his Christian faith. So he is now your brother. He's one of you. He's not Onesimus the slave. He's Onesimus the Christian. The Apostle Paul reinforces this fact in Galatians 3, verses 27 and 29, when he writes this, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. Just as a side note here, it is these truths which cause the Western world to abolish slavery altogether. As Christianity began working its way through the Western world, And more and more people were becoming Christians and slave masters converted to Christ. And then slaves became uh, believers in Christ. They could no longer look at each other the same way. Slave masters would look at their Christian slaves and say, how can I hold you in slavery? You're my brother. You're my equal. It destroyed slavery in the West. And in those parts of the world where Christianity has had very little influence, slavery continues right to this day. We pray for the gospel to advance there for the salvation of souls and the liberation of people too. But here we have two faithful believers associated with Paul. They're going to deliver this letter to the church in Colossae, Tychicus and Onesimus. Now we look at verses 10 through 14. Here Paul lists a group of people who were eager to send their greetings to the church of Colossae along with Paul. The first man in this list is called Aristarchus. You see that beginning of verse 10. 
Aristarchus. This was a Jewish man from Thessalonica. He had traveled with Paul during the latter stages of his missionary journeys, and he was clearly thrown into prison with Paul in Rome. What another great team member for Paul to have. This was no fair-weather friend. He didn't stick around when things were good for Paul and then take off when things got hard. No, he stayed with Paul through all of it, through the thick and the thin. And now here he is imprisoned in a Roman jail cell with Paul. What an encouragement that must have been for both men to have a fellow Christian in the cell with them, someone that they could pray with, sing with, perhaps share scriptures with. And then another man, Mark, mentioned in the middle of verse 10. Okay, he's called Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. This was another Jewish man on Paul's team. He had accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey, but then he had abandoned Paul halfway through. And this led to a falling out between Paul and Mark that lasted for several years. But now we see that Mark and Paul have been reconciled to each other. Mark has rejoined the ministry team, and now he is in Rome, continuing to minister even as Paul is in prison. This is also the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark at the beginning of our Bible, so an important man in the early church. He sent his greetings along to the church in Colossae. Then we look in verse 11, and we see another name. This one is called Jesus, also Justice, another Jewish man. The name Jesus was very popular in Israel in the ancient day. Justice was the Greek version of his name. It says, Jesus, who is called Justice. Other than these names, we know absolutely nothing about this man. We only know he worked alongside Paul here in Rome. We know that he was a faithful gospel minister, and he sent his greetings to the church of Colossae. Then we come to verses 12 and 13. Here we have a message from Epaphras. Now, this is a name you should know already because he's come up earlier in the book. Epaphras was a man from Colossae. He had traveled to the nearby city of Ephesus. That's where he met the Apostle Paul. And he was converted to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. Epaphras then had a burden for his hometown. So he left Ephesus, went back to Colossae, and began sharing the gospel. Epaphras became the founder of the church in Colossae. And it appears that he also founded churches in other neighboring towns. A town's called Laodicea and Hierapolis. I think that's why Paul gives Epaphras more space in his final goodbyes than any other man. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, okay, another fellow Christian and resident of Colossae, and a servant of Jesus, greets you. Do you notice how Paul keeps using the word servant? He has described himself as a servant in this book. He's called uh, Tychicus and... Uh, Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, but now he is also calling Epaphras a servant. He uses the word servant over and over again to describe the members of Christ's church. 
You see, in, in the church of Christ, nobody aspires to be a king. We've already got a king. That's Christ. And so within the church, the highest title that you can receive is that you are a faithful servant. And so the gospel of Christ elevates everyone and it humbles everyone at the same time. It elevates us. It elevates the slave to become a brother, to become one of us. But then it all lowers us. It lowers us to be called all servants of Christ. Epaphras was a great servant of Christ. And notice what Paul says about him. He says, he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. We know the church of Colossae was besieged by false teachers, and they were trying to lead the church astray in all kinds of things. Things like asceticism, food and drink, the worship of angels. There was almost no end to the list of false teachings these guys were bringing to the church. Epaphras had a burden for this church. Even though he was now in Rome, he was on his knees praying for them every single day. You'll notice it says he was struggling on their behalf in prayer. That word could also be translated as battling or wrestling in prayer. See, true prayer is no easy task. It is physically and emotionally exhausting work. But it's work that makes a difference. And so Epaphras was on his knees night and day begging God to help this little church. God, help them to see through the lies of the false teachers. Help them to stand strong. Help them to be assured of the truths of the gospel as they first heard it. And then it also says that he was working hard on their behalf. That's verse 13. And he was working hard for the Christians in Laodicea and Hierapolis, other churches that he probably founded. Epaphras worked hard and he prayed hard. This was a zealous follower of Christ. Now look at verse 14. We have another man in Paul's entourage. This man is called Luke, the beloved physician. Luke accompanied the Apostle Paul on some of his travels through Macedonia and Palestine. He was shipwrecked with the Apostle Paul on their voyage to Rome. This is also the man who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts in our New Testaments, which together, by the way, comprise about 25% of our New Testament scriptures. So Luke had an important role in the early church. Paul calls him the beloved physician. That may be why Luke was accompanying Paul. You see, Paul was was, uh, an older man. His body was very weak. We know he suffered with with blindness. Tradition says he also struggled to walk. He was bow-legged. He walked with a staff. I'll bet Luke joined him just to minister to his medical needs as he tried to preach the gospel. That's why he is the beloved physician. And then the end of verse 14 Demas. Isn't it interesting that there are no further descriptors? He's just Demas. He sends his greetings too. Now we know that toward the end, the very end of Paul's ministry, 
Demas would forsake the Christian faith altogether. Paul says he would love this present world more than he loved Christ. So he left. Maybe there were inklings of that even here. And so he just says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And so does Demas. That's verses 10 to 14. Now we look at verses 15 to 17. Here the apostle makes a series of final requests. And along with these requests, we're given a whole bunch of more names. Look at verse 15. It says, And give my greetings, this is Paul speaking, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. Undoubtedly a reference to the church in that town. And then he says, And to Nympha and the church in her house. So Nympha is a Gentile woman. She was apparently very wealthy because she had a church meeting inside of her home. This is the way it often worked in in the uh, ancient world. See, back in the first century, the church was a persecuted minority. They couldn't build church buildings. And so they would meet wherever they could. Sometimes they met outside, and sometimes if their, their congregation had a wealthy member with a big estate, they could meet inside that person's home. So Nympha was a a faithful Christian, and she was hospitable. She welcomed the whole church to worship inside of her home. We don't know where Nympha's church was located. Was it on the outskirts of one of these other towns mentioned? Was was it uh, within one of these towns? We simply don't know. But it's another church that Paul was aware of. Then we have this interesting comment in verse 16. Look at this. It says, And when this letter, okay, the letter he's now concluding for the Colossian church, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. The letter from Laodicea. That's probably a reference to the book of Ephesians. See, this is how it worked in the first century. The apostles would write their divinely inspired, authoritative texts to churches, and the church would the churches would read the letter, but then they would pass it on to the other churches. They would write copies and distribute them to other churches. And so what probably happened here is that the church the uh, letter Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus had then made its way to Laodicea. And now Paul was saying to Colossae, take the letter that's now in Laodicea, you guys read that one, and take the letter I'm giving you, hand it off to Laodicea. This is how our New Testament scriptures were compiled. The apostles wrote their letters, and then the churches took it upon themselves to copy and disseminate the letters to each other until everybody had a complete set. That's how we got our New Testament. And then verse 17, Paul has final words for a man named Archippus. He says, Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now this suggests that Archippus was a pastor. I don't know where he pastored. Maybe he served under Epaphras in these churches. Maybe he pastored in a different church. Simply another man that Paul knew, and he wanted to send his Good wishes to him. And then finally, verse 18, we have Paul's last goodbye. 
He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. See, what's happening here is that Paul would dictate his letters to an amanuensis. Okay, he would speak, somebody else would write. Again, like I said, Paul was mostly blind. Maybe he had arthritis in his hands. He, he couldn't write his own letters. So he'd dictate them. But then when he got to the very end, he would take up the pen finally, and he would write with his hand the final goodbye. Then he would sign off. This is so the churches would know that this was an authentic letter. See, even in Paul's day, people were writing forgeries. So he would apply his signature to his letters so they would know that it was real. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and then his final words, remember my chains, simply means keep praying for me while I'm in prison. And then a final blessing, grace be with you. Wow. What a remarkable conclusion to a remarkable letter. The letter to the Colossians began with an expression of Paul's gratitude for the church in Colossae. Then it moved to these incredible expressions of Christ's sovereignty over all things. From there, it moved into an extended talk about the sufficiency of Christ for our daily Christian lives. It included exhortations to persevere in faith in Christ. And now, at the end of chapter 4, we have this warm goodbye and a long listing of ministry colleagues and all of their well wishes for the church. Now, as we come to the close of this passage, I'd like to share a a few lessons with you. Uh, These were lessons that, that I learned as I was studying the text this week. And I want to pass them along. Now, if you're looking at your outline in your bulletin, you see five lessons. I'm only going to do the first three because of time. Here's the first lesson I take away from from today's text. In a day of increasing isolation, this text reminds us that we have a family. In a day of increasing isolation, this text reminds us that we have a family. My friends, our nation has been losing its social capital for decades now. Robert Putnam brought this to our attention with his 2000 book, Bowling Alone. He showed how the number of bowlers in America has been going up steadily for decades, but the number of bowling leagues has been going down. See, the the institutions that bring people together are collapsing. And he doesn't just leave it at bowling leagues. He mentions political parties and civic organizations, city charities. Every social institution in our society is in a state of decline. And it's created an epidemic of loneliness in our country. Our neighborhoods have changed, and not for the better. Drive through some of the oldest neighborhoods in Marshall, and what do you find? You find homes with front porches and then sidewalks. Close, close behind them. People used to like to sit on their front porch so they could greet their neighbors as they walked their dogs or took their kids to a local park. Now drive through the newest neighborhoods in Marshall. What do those look like? The front porches are gone. Instead, we've got back decks 
and probably a privacy fence wrapping around the backyard. See, people are isolating themselves today. Things have only gotten worse since the pandemic began. Now we do virtually everything from home. We work from home. We shop from home. We get all of our entertainment at home. Some people even get their religion at home, just watching a screen every week. But friends, what we see in this text is what God designed our lives to look like. Listen, long-term isolation is soul-destroying. That's why drug and alcohol abuse and domestic violence have been through the roof since the pandemic started. It's why suicides among teenagers have gone through the roof. People cannot bear isolation for long. But this is what we're doing to ourselves as a society. Here in today's passage, though, we see this wonderful alternative way to live. We find that, that in the church, God has given us exactly what we need. The minute you become a believer in Christ, you become a part of a global family. Stretches all over the world. You are spiritually united to Christ and spiritually united to everyone else who holds faith in Christ. And then God calls you to find a local assembly of these believers. It's called the local church where you can go and share life with other people. One of the most precious phrases in our New Testament is the phrase, one another. It appears over and over again in the New Testament. Believers in the local church are to pray for one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, um, challenge one another, and just on and on the list goes. God created us as social beings, and He never meant for us to live in isolation. He didn't even mean for us to live in our little immediate families, in all those little silos. No, he wants families to come together to form churches. And he wants these churches to love each other and to work together to fulfill the biblical mission. I love the language that Paul uses in this text, how he refers to his ministry colleagues as brother and sister and how he pours on these expressions of love. See, friends, this is how life is meant to be lived. We need to rediscover the local church today. Can I make a personal appeal? Some, within the sound of my voice, have been keeping the local church at arm's length. Maybe you will come, but you're here as late as possible, and then you're gone as early as possible. You don't want to get too close to people. And maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe it's social anxiety that causes you to kind of hold yourself back. Or maybe it's the hurt from past church experiences, so you just don't want to get too close. But listen, it's God's will for all of us that we find the way, and His grace will provide the way, that we find the way to break through those old barriers and fully immerse ourselves into the lives of a local church. He wants you to love others and be loved by others in a healthy church community. He wants you to be prayed for and to pray for others and to lift others up and to be lifted up by others. 
Friends, I think some of our local churches need to rediscover the beauty of working together, too. Don't we see this in Paul's words? He mentions the church in Colossae, and then there's the church of Laodicea, and the one in Hierapolis, and then there's the church that meets in Nympha's house. And Paul is making sure that all of these different local churches are aware of each other. And he's encouraging them to communicate, right? Exchange letters with each other. Hey, this church sends greetings to your church. He's trying to form an association between them. This is also God's will. It's not good for local churches to stand alone. They need relationships with other biblically faithful local churches that they can link arms with in this great commission work that Christ has given to us. All of it is for our good, and all of it redounds to His glory. So let us not miss this lesson from today's text. Second lesson. In a day of celebrity worship... This text speaks to the importance of ordinary people and especially of ordinary Christians. Listen, our society worships bigness. Big celebrity names, big cities, big businesses, big churches. Everybody celebrates bigness. In our culture, if something's big, it's deemed important. If something's small, it's deemed unimportant. But author Francis A. Schaeffer reminds us that in God's eyes, there are no little places and no little people. You see, every single person is an image bearer of God. That gives them importance. And every single life is here right now by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God has a will for every life, and He's got a purpose for your life. And God doesn't care about things like bigness and smallness. He just cares about faithfulness and you doing what He has called you to do. Think about it. Whom did God choose to raise His beloved Son? He didn't choose a king to do it. He chose a poor carpenter and his teenage wife-to-be. God is in the business of using small things and ordinary things to accomplish his great purposes. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us why. It says God chooses what is foolish in the world. He chooses the weak in the world. He chooses the low and despised in the world. So that when he does incredible things through them, he gets all the glory. And we don't. And that's the way that it should be. You know, friends, in the Christian world, we've got our celebrity pastors, don't we? We, we look at their ministries. They're, they're on the radio all over the country. And they've got these massive, well-produced TV programs. They've got books in all the Christian bookshelves. We look at them and say, wow, look what they're doing for God. But do you understand, my friends, that all of their work combined represents just a teeny, tiny fraction of the ministry taking place in the world today. The vast majority of disciples being made and believers being baptized and missionaries being sent and donations being given are being done through little people in little churches and in little communities all over this world. 
That's how God is normally pleased to operate. According to the latest statistics, there are about 300,000 local churches in America right now. The median size of a church in America is 65 attendees. Around the world, the average local church is even smaller. I remember talking to friends in Istanbul about our church and told them we're a small church, and I told them about, about our size, and they're like, small? That's huge! That's a huge church. Say, over here, once we get to 20, we have peaked. God is pleased to use ordinary people and ordinary churches. He's pleased to use small things to accomplish His big purposes because that's how He gets all the glory. Look at Paul's list here. Colossians chapter 4. Now, Paul could be called a celebrity Christian. Mark and Luke were also very well known. They had some important writings making the, uh, the circuit. But look at these other guys. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Justus, Epaphras, Nympha, Archippus. These are small people. We don't know anything about them. History books don't include their names, just this one. We don't know anything about how they spent their lives other than that they were faithful servants of Christ. But you know what? God used them to turn the ancient world upside down. He used their little churches. Look at the names of the towns listed here. Hierapolis, Colossae, Laodicea. Right, not exactly the major cities of the world. This isn't Babylon or Rome. God is doing a work in these little towns. People are being brought to faith in Christ. God is being glorified in these places. The gospel is advancing here in Calhoun County because of little churches just like ours who just go to work every Monday and try to be a faithful witness and who organizes a local church from time to time for community-wide evangelism. It's churches like this one that are changing our county. And friends, heaven will be filled with ordinary people who just went to work every day. They raised their kids, served their little neighborhood churches, and died faithful. My friends, don't aim for celebrity. Don't think that because you're not part of something big that your life is insignificant. No. God is pleased to work through small and ordinary people. That's the second lesson. Now, more quickly, let's go through the third and final lesson. My third takeaway from this text is that in a day of identity politics, this passage showcases the power of the gospel to erase all dividing lines. Now, what do I mean by identity politics? Well, that refers to the practice of identifying yourself by things like your race, your class, your gender, something like that. So you identify your existence by one of those things, and then you find everyone who's like you, and then you believe that everyone who's not like you is out to get you. Politicians thrive on identity politics. Every election season, they use it to gain power. 
They break us up into groups based on these superficial things. And they try to pit groups against groups. This is also the foundation of critical race theory. Theory designed to bring about racial harmony in our country, but it has caused more racial division than anything I've seen in my lifetime. It's a philosophy of resentment. But notice today's passage. Here we have men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and freemen, rich and poor. And they're all part of the same family. Paul calls them all brother, sister, one of us, one of you, faithful servant. All of those divisions are gone in the church of Christ. Now, how did that happen when he didn't have the blessing of critical race theory to sort this all out? Well, look at the text. What brought them together was the gospel of Christ. That's all that's needed. The gospel of Christ erases all the old dividing lines like nothing else can for two reasons. Number one, because of the doctrines that make up the gospel. The gospel message is this, that there is one God who created all of us. There is one human race created by God. And that one human race, though spread out among many different ethnicities, all bears the divine image and therefore is equal in all the ways that matter. Gospel also teaches that this one human race has one common problem. We all share it. It's the sin nature inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. The gospel tells us there is one common solution to our problem. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, His perfect righteousness and His substitutionary atonement. And through repentance and faith in Him, we can receive His righteousness as a gift and He will take our sins and judge them on Himself. You see, one God, one humanity, one problem, one solution. These doctrines have a way of uniting people together so that when I see somebody else who comes from a different culture or a different race, that's not the first thing I'm seeing anymore. What I'm seeing is an image bearer of God who shares my sin nature, who needs the same solution that I have found. And when they embrace it, they've become my brother my sister. See how the doctrines of the gospel have a way of, of bringing people together. And then there are the practical consequences of the gospel. Upon faith and repentance, God really does work within the hearts of his people. And he cultivates what the book of Galatians calls the fruit of his spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. You know, those new virtues do a really good job of removing all of the racial resentments and class resentments and gender resentments and everything else that used to hold people apart. When you come to learn how to love another person, be patient and kind and gentle with them, how to have self-control so that you are, you are reining in those baser impulses. This promotes healing. 
So in short, in the church, Christ has given us all that we need to thrive. He's given us community. He's given us significance, reconciliation with God and each other. He's given us truth and he's given us grace. We have all we need in the church. And tomorrow is Valentine's Day. I better go buy a Valentine's Day card. (laughs) Maybe a flower. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. This is a day when everybody celebrates love and they find ways to express their love to the object of their love. Well, friends, maybe this Valentine's Day weekend we could fall back in love with the church and maybe we could start performing some actions to show our love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. God gave it to us. It's a precious gift, the church is. Let's show love for the church. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this this final passage from the book of Colossians. So much to learn. Lord, I, I wish I could spend week upon week going back through this list and drawing out new lessons. Your word is an inexhaustible well of wisdom. Lord, would you help us to take the few lessons that we have considered and apply them to our lives? Help us to see the amazing gift that you have given us in the church. And help us, Lord, to love your church as Christ loved it and gave himself for it. Help us to love each other as fellow believers. And Lord, please use us, a small church in a small city, just ordinary folk, but Lord, would you use us to turn this corner of the world upside down. We know that you can do it through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.